Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director at Pitchfork, and this is the Pitchfork Review. Now, this is chiefly a new music podcast, but we're going to be doing something a little different today, and I'm really stoked about it. A little background. For almost every week for the last seven years, the review section has been running what we call the Sunday Review, which is a long essay about an album from the distant or recent past. And every Sunday, one of our writers dives deep into an artist and one of their most significant albums. They go into the making of it, the historical context, the present context, fun anecdotes, personal revelations, the whole thing. So for 2024, we're going to be adding a podcast component to a handful of Sunday reviews. I'll be talking with writers and diving unfathomably deep into the album in a conversation. And I couldn't think of a better writer to start with than Grayson Curran, who just wrote about Brian Eno's 1978 album Ambient One, Music for Airports, a mythically important album that essentially coined the ambient genre. Grayson has been writing for the site since 2006 and has through hiked three of the longest trails in America, where he has still not yet been sponsored by his favorite food group, Pop-Tarts. Grayson, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I just want to say uh, the number of trails is six. Six. And also, um, I know that Pop-Tarts is now in a sponsoring athletic events. There's no free ads here on this Pitchfork podcast. I know you really like them and they're a wonderful carb-heavy treat, but we're here to talk about ambient music. We're here to talk about Brian Eno. Here we go. Your review, which just ran last Sunday, it's a really wonderful piece. I kind of wanted to ask you, when did you first listen to Brian Eno's ambient music? Or if you have a better answer, when did you first come across Brian Eno? Yeah, I think they were actually the same. I have a distinct memory of sitting in a friend's bedroom around 2005. I had just graduated from college. I'd really gotten uh, deeply invested in experimental music was trying to to delve even deeper into that world. And I remember sitting in a friend's bedroom and, you know, music for airports starts with this sort of chime, this piano note. And I just remember hearing that really distinctly and being completely taken with it for the next, what, 47 minutes or something. I'm sure I'd heard Roxy Music. Eno had co-produced these classic albums by U2, starting with Unforgettable Fire and then, you know, sort of lasting for a decade. And I mean, I knew 
Brian Eno's sounds, but I didn't really know who Brian Eno was at that point and how important he would end up being in my life. Yeah, I think that probably goes for a lot of people that, you know, even if you don't know Brian Eno's solo albums, surely you've heard him on a U2 album or a Coldplay album. Yeah. I wanted to go back to that bedroom. Like, did you just sit there and listen to Ambient One Music for Airports as the main activity that you were doing, like in silence? Yeah, I think we probably sat there and smoked a joint or something. We hung out, talked, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and that's sort of, I think, one of the beauties of music for reports that we'll get into is ignorable as it is interesting, right? Like that's the famous phrase from the liner notes that, you know, wrote, which are sort of a manifesto for ambient music. Mm-hmm. The thing that I've found with this record is that once you put it on, you're sort of there. You sort of get lost in the slipstream. And I think that's what happened to us. Well, let's talk a little bit about ambient music like writ large. This album, you know, it's titled, obviously, Ambient One Music for Airports. And there's sort of in what I like to refer to, like, either as a mythical or, like, apocryphal, like, this is the first ambient album. But there was a lot of ambient music that existed in the world before 1978. I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through what you imagine the lineage backwards from Ambient One Music for Airports is. You know, Eno has sort of famously called the the minimalist composer Lamont Young the granddaddy of us all. Mm-hmm. And Lamont Young is a really contentious figure in the history of this music. He's sort of a famous curmudgeon. But in terms of the music he made, he made this very long-lasting, slow-moving, glacial music. And that was one of my first exposures to music in this realm, I'd say, is this theater of eternal music. That really was fascinating to me um, and sort of the orbit around him, which included John Cale, soon joined the Velvet Underground, um, Tony Conrad. There's a, a really wide orbit of things that, you know, found interesting at this point, And I think they all sort of funnel into his development of ambient music. One is John Cage, who is one of the most important composers and, and, and I think as important thinkers of the 20th century. Also a, a renowned mycologist, if you're into mushrooms. You know, Cage had worked so much in this sort of meditative space There's a beautiful piece called Prelude for Meditation. It's this very short, prepared piano piece. And I think, you know, these ideas were in Eno's mind as he started working in this space. It was sort of really deep appreciation of slow time and of silence was a huge keystone for Eno. It was always a process, right? Like he was really deeply interested in art that in in situations that he could set up right Mm -hmm. he's famously called himself for a long time the non-musician right like he's probably one of the more musically notable self-proclaimed non-musicians to exist Mm -hmm. and even in roxy music a lot of what he was doing was manipulating other musicians instruments rather than quote-unquote playing something himself you know it's also worth mentioning the other big influence for you know especially in ambient one is steve reich who used a lot of this technique in his early work called phasing, where basically he'd set two sounds off at slightly different tempos, so they would kind of pass in and out of each other. The best example that I can think of is like when your windshield wiper goes on and off the beat in your car. Sure. There's a lot of phasing songs that he does, but the one that Eno was really inspired by is this 1965 piece called It's Gonna Rain, which takes a sample, I believe, of a preacher saying it's going to rain and then phases it in and out. 
And what happens is the longer you listen to it, the more you hear different parts of the recording. So it's not just the preacher saying it's going to rain, but you'll pick up on like a dog barking or hearing a bird in the background or something like that. You hear the entire sound field when this whole thing starts repeating over and over again. Beautiful. So yeah, he gets busy again. He's making a lot of records. He's working with David Bowie in Berlin. He's working with Harmonian Cluster in Germany as well. While he was making all these rock records and like working with Bowie and like courting the Talking Heads, whose record he soon produced, and mm-hmm. and also Devo, you know, he was deeply invested in experimental music and in you know sort of the avant garde. He famously started Obscure Records right before Music for Airports. He starts this label that that is sort of putting out like the cutting edge of where classical music meets modern ideas about sound. Mm-hmm. You know, Gavin Breyer's The Sinking of the Titanic is the first record on that label, and it's, you know, a, it's a masterpiece. Essentially, Breyer's orchestrally recreates the idea of this quartet kind of going to the bottom of the ocean. The other one is uh, Jesus' Blood Never Fell Me Yet, which, like the Reich, includes a sample that sort of gets blurred over time as this orchestra comes in. And so these are both fairly impactful pieces for Eno because... With both of these pieces of work, you sort of hear time slow down. And that's something that happens in music for airports. And, you know, like when he was playing with David Bowie, he's adding these like deeply meditative textures to these records and these instrumental tracks on the Berlin Trilogy. And that's Eno, right? Like that's him Mm -hmm. sort of squaring up with Bowie and saying like, this is the shit I'm interested in. The big sort of Eno song from Bowie's album Low is a song called Warzawa. Exactly. That's where you can really hear Eno's influence and his heavy hand in Bowie's music. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of for all these years been kind of nibbling around the edges of all this sound, right? Like this is stuff he knew he was interested in. These are ideas he wanted to get to, but he didn't really have the mechanism for it, right? Mm. The thing about Ambient One is it's really about connecting these pieces with which Eno had had experience and fascination for, you know, 10 or 15 years at this point. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost when we talk about the start of ambient music is it's like, it's not a hard start, right? We were sort of working up to it for decades. Mm. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we will talk about some of the nitty gritty of like how this music was made. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back. So there are a lot of avenues into this album, but there is sort of like one main origin story for this, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about 
what happened to Brian Eno that sort of led him to want to create this album. Sure. So you sort of see for the first eight years of his career, which I would say like is from the beginning of the 70s to Music for Airports, you sort of see these cycles of like intense activity and these moments where he's just like, man, I'm fucking tired. <laughs> He'd been working on his solo records and, and sort of losing his mind because it was so hard and arduous. Yeah. So, you know, kind of came to Ambient One through like this context of burnout, like which I think is something that increasingly maybe we all relate to. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in one of those very busy phases of his life, you know, was crossing the street and he slipped and a, uh, a black taxi hit him. He got hit at a fairly high speed and, you know, he thought he was dying, but he, he didn't die. He went to the hospital. He was there for a while. He didn't really like the hospital because who does? And so he goes home. He's in his little apartment. He had a friend and a roommate, Judy Nylon, who came over with this record of, of heart music that she'd bought while, you know, getting off the train. She was taking it to, you know, for a gift. And she goes to his house. He's kind of laying on the floor. She puts the record on the turntable. It's this cheap harp music record. And it's raining outside. It's raining against the window. And, you know, it's kind of like near the window and somewhat far away from the record player. And, you know, the, the counts vary. In Eno's telling, she plays the record. It's really quiet, but he's too sore to, like, get up and turn it up. Uh, and her telling, she's essentially twiddling the knobs so that the rain on the window and the record, the harp music, sort of makes sense together. Whichever way it happened, he kind of has this revelation of this music that, like, you can get lost in but isn't consuming everything in your mind, right? Like, the music is combining with the rest of the space to create this atmosphere, and that was sort of the spark of him thinking about ambient music. And not long after that, we have discrete music, and then, you know, that sort of begins the snowball effect of him getting to music for reports within the next three years. Discrete music comes out in 1975, and I mean, this is the major prelude to Ambient One Music for Airports, mostly due to the first piece on the record, which is like a 30-minute, very drone-heavy song. Somehow, like that song, Discrete Music, got used a lot in hypnobirth playlists. Mm. And so Brian, Brian Eno has this quote, which is amazing. He says, I should think by now I've met about 60 or 70 kids who came out of the womb listening to discrete music, which, of course, is any marketing department's dream. Get them right there in the beginning, you know? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, discrete music, very important stepping stone in this journey that we're on. When he played it for Robert Fripp, he accidentally played it at half speed, too. And I think that was a huge moment because yeah. Fripp famously said, you know, that's like the best piece of music I've ever heard you make. Yeah. And we know it's like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking about how much Brian Eno loves processes. And if you're listening to this music in the context of 21st century ambient music, like you might not realize the process that went into that. Anybody could sort of recreate the sound of this album in like logic right now. Yeah. You could speed run <laughs> ambient one music for airports in about five minutes uh, if you really wanted to do it. But obviously that technology wasn't available back then. So maybe you can talk about like what is the process of creating some of these tracks? Because I think it's fascinating. Sure. So he's in he's in Germany. You know, he's sort of flying back and forth between Germany and London to work a with Bowie, but also with with Connie Plank and members of Cluster. So he's with Connie Plank, who had produced and engineered some of the seminal Krautrock records of the seventies. 
and Connie Plank is making a record with Holgar Shuke from Cannes. And essentially, you know, is marveling at their use of tape. Like what they're doing is so laborious. They're basically stitching tape together using very early samples that Hogar had collected in travels. So yeah, you know, is watching part of this record happen. And, you know, he's really fascinated by the way they're able to put so many samples together and sort of make this larger record out of these very small sounds. You know, I think Persian Love is a really a key track in that evolution of thought. So while they're in the studio, you know, has this idea. So he gets Krista Fast, who's the girlfriend and soon to be wife, I think, of, of Connie Plank and two other singers who are working around the studio, Christine Gomez and Inga Zeiningar. He joins them in sort of these like slow intonations. Uh, it's a quartet singing these pieces. He and Connie Plank take these sort of droning vocals and splice them and cut them into different lengths of tape. And it's so rudimentary that they literally wrap the tape around the legs of these chairs in the studio and they let them phase in and out of each other. And that is the second piece on Music for Airports. Eno goes home. He uh, adds piano to very similar vocals um, from the same session. And that's the third piece on the record. But I think like the, the big defining moment, you know, if the first track is kind of the masterpiece of music for airports, then I would probably argue it is. He goes home and he gets his friends together. He'd been really interested in this process of uh, having random, not random, but musicians together who had never really played together before and like putting them in a room and seeing what happened. You know, that was a huge part of his quote unquote rock records. So he gets Robert Wyatt and a few others together and they're playing and they can't really hear each other. They're just like jamming kind of into the void because the technology isn't good enough for them to actually hear each other. And I don't think that was on purpose, but it is kind of this beautiful accident because Eno actually hears what's happening between them. And he spots this moment where the instruments rub up against each other, where the electronic keyboard and the piano sort of have this beautiful moment. He hones in that moment. He drops everything out and he just starts looping it and he slows it way down, which is like, a you know, another thing that he was doing a lot of, including with those vocal pieces. And he plays along. And so he's sort of building this band. He's building this electronic band from actual musicians. And then he plays along to it. And he's, he's almost like in the shadows of the piece the entire time playing synthesizer. Mm. And what it does, it sort of lifts these harmonies that are happening in the piece as it phases over and over again. And by phasing, basically we're talking about like different lengths of tape moving in and out of each other. So like the harmonies and the rhythms, it's all kind of accidental, right? And he basically sits still with that piece of music as it phases and plays where it makes sense to him. And that essentially becomes the piece. It comes by this series of sort of experiments and accidents. Yeah, and the, you know, the final song, 
2-2, as it's famously known. <laughs> what, what a jam. What a jam. That's when he uses the ARP synthesizer, right? That's right. He's just playing. Yeah, he's just playing and slowing it down and um, he's running it through different modules. And I think that's probably like the most conventionally played and accessible piece here. Yeah. I think something that I love about Tutu is it. It's a reminder. It's like a really direct and tactile reminder that like, you know, even if he called himself a non-musician, this is a musician playing. Eno has said that like one of the reasons that he wrote this is that he wanted it to be separate from the commercial music that was happening mm-hmm. that didn't seem to be based in any sort of emotional or psychological theory. And you know, the famous way he puts it, you know, always talks about how the music that he wanted to hear in an airport was music that didn't try to hide the fact that he was going to die. He was a a nervous flyer. He was always on the move. He's sitting in an airport and he's like, why is the music in here so awful? (laughs) It was just sort of there, canned in, because it was better than silence. And silence probably made people anxious, you know? That's right. If you're buying something in a mall, like you just need to grease the wheels of capitalism a little bit. And the best way to do that is with, you know, some bossa nova or whatever. (laughs) No shots to bossa nova. (laughs) But what's fascinating to me about this record is that there is this sort of classical collegiate academic theory to it like in the, on the back of the record each track is graphically notated yep which is a very sort of mfa in music theory style way of like looking at uh composition but on the other hand he's almost like in, in a primitive way using these tapes and distorting them and breaking them to make something new those two worlds coming together is what's so fascinating about this record the thing that always marvels me, no matter how many times I listen to this record, is that it is about limitation, right? It's about knowing when to say when. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. There's so much going on that I wrote a lot of words about it and could have probably <laughs> written more. Uh-huh. And much has been written about it. But like in terms of like actual sonic events, they're pretty few and far between. There's this incredible story. When Eno was hanging out with the Talking Heads uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, he met Don Cherry. Don Cherry, famous free jazz musician, played the pocket cornet. Exactly. And he essentially told Don Cherry, I like your music, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't repeat enough. Like there's not enough repetition. <laughs> and that's where things get interesting is when repetition happens. And that is like the premise of this record, right? It is an impressionistic piece of music built on repetition where the idea is that you sort of enter it and, you know, he's created a world of sound, but you sort of create a world of meaning. And that's something that keeps bringing me back to this piece of music so many times. Yeah, it's it's confrontational. I, I've always made this connection that there's like this horseshoe theory. The loudest music is confrontational and the softest, the quietest music is also confrontational. Because it's asking a lot of you. It's demanding a lot from you the same way that like extreme black metal demands a lot from you. Another interesting thing that we should mention is that this is coming out right around the time where the Walkman is invented in the late 70s. And so now suddenly you can take this music with you. You can take a cassette of Ambient One and walk around with it. And all of a sudden the world that was once confined to a hospital or an airport is now just traveling with you. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this sort of progression of like more portable music and especially more personalized portable music, Mm. like Eno tries to install 
this music in places. Like he tries to put it in LaGuardia Airport. There are yeah. various airports that have it. And it's it's kind of a disaster. So like people aren't that into it. Mm-hmm. But but if you have the ability to create your own ambient environment through sound, you know, when you put, let's say, ambient one into a Walkman or you put an Alien Radique record in your phone now and walk to the grocery store, like you're able to create your own environment. And I think that's such a key part of the ambient bloom, uh, which is a, a pun I didn't mean to make, <laughs> you know, of the of the last decade or two. You know, there's so much ambient music being made now. And I think so much of it has to do with like the idea that you can personalize your sonic space no matter where you are, mm. because you can kind of create your own little cocoon. And I think that's one thing that Music for Airports has always at least allowed me to do. Yeah, absolutely. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we will share some of our more contemporary favorite ambient pieces that we've been really digging. Hello, we're back. So each of us have brought a couple of songs and or pieces and or albums from contemporary ambient artists. Grayson, what do you have for us? Something about Music for Airports that I really appreciate, two two things. A is a physical process, which we talked about, but one is that like Eno wasn't part of like some grand ambient community. It obviously didn't really exist, but but he was coming from these contexts of making rock music. And two recent records that have done that for me, both the physical aspect and the outsider status. Um, one is the Blake Mills, it's an EP called Look, came out in 2018. And uh, one is the first track on that. It almost begins as the inverse of um, Music for Airports, which begins very gently. And one sort of begins with this like exclamation. It's like, it's mean and it's distorted and it's just this huge burst of sound. And then for the next several minutes, you just sort of watch that decay and you sort of watch the layers pull back and these vocals kind of slide into these pockets. And it's just a beautiful piece of music where you can sort of hear the players at work, but you can also totally step away from it in that way. And Blake Mills, you know, I should say like, much like Eno, like Blake Mills is a better guitarist than Brian Eno, uh, but <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he is a producer, right? Like he, he uses the studio as an instrument in all of his records. That's right. Much so. You know, he is a descendant of Eno, absolutely in that way. And and he's kind of an outsider in, in the ambient world. And also another person like that is a pedal steel guitarist from Nashville named Luke Schneider. And his 2020 record came out right as the pandemic set in. It's called Altar of Harmony. And, and I think it's just a tremendous, tremendous record. And every sound on it is made with the pedal steel guitar. So again, it's like, here's this, this very good player of this instrument, recognizing its limitations and then trying to figure out where it can go outside of that. that record is so perfectly tied to like what Eno was doing in terms of looking at the limitations that this one thing has and then trying to figure out these different and new pathways for it. So those are two recommendations that fit music for airports for me. That's amazing. Those two records are are wonderful. I highly recommend them. I'm going to quickly leave you with two of my own One is this record that came out in 2022 by Leah Bertucci and Robbie Lee, and it's called Winds, Bells, Falls. Um, That's not something I enjoy saying on a microphone, but nevertheless, (laughs) if you want to hear somebody like manipulate tape 
live. Like that's what Leah Bertucci does. And so she basically manipulates the music of Robbie Lee on the opening track, Glitter and Gleam. You hear her bend the pitch of the actual track. And when she plays live, like you can see her sort of do this. And to me, like when you were talking about, like that's the physicality that I really enjoy about ambient music. Absolutely. I wouldn't call this music relaxing. It is very curious and inquisitive and uh, unsettling in a way, but uh, but I, I find it fascinating. And yeah. That's really good. If you haven't heard it, put it on. Wonderful stuff. Um, but this other record from last year that I want to briefly shout out is by two artists, Gigi Massine and Rod Modell. That's sort of a collaboration, each of them remixing each other's pieces called Red Hair Girl at Lighthouse Beach. And each so sort of has like an, their own take on ambient music. Rod Modell is a Detroit ambient producer, DJ. He's been around for a really long time. And Gigi Messine is, I believe, Italian. That's right. And he's uh, part of this band called Gaussian Curve. They do sort of like a Derudi column, ambient guitar, like full band style thing. Um, A little Balearic, beachy, really beautiful stuff. Gaussian Curve, highly recommend that. Um, But Red Hair Girl at Lighthouse Beach, beautiful, slow-moving, elegiac music. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I'd, I'd miss that record. I'd, I'm glad you recommended it. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And I, I guess those are two records where people collaborate with each other. Yeah. And we could do a whole other podcast about the many, many collaborations that Brian, you know, has done uh, post-ambient stuff. But we're going to have to leave it there. Grayson, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, soft, lovely, slow-moving, <laughs> spare, but I would say beautiful conversation, <laughs> wouldn't you? I, I don't think I would say that, simply because... Um, <laughs> from the south and we're very modest people but thanks jeremy that's very kind of you you're welcome thanks so much grayson the pitchfork review is a production of Condé nast entertainment mark yoshizumi elia einhorn and katie lau at 3db are our producers ryan domble is our showrunner and jessica gramulia is our music supervisor you can catch a new Sunday review each week at pitchfork.com. Make sure to check out recent episodes of the Pitchfork Review, including last week's interview with Jeff Tweedy. Till next week, take care. <laughs>